Welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together. Whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading or getting involved in a deal in another way. We do this by informing, entertaining and enjoying ourselves talking property, which gives you a chance to get to know us, what we're up to and to check us out until you're ready to make money together. In the meantime, My Property World is free and fun, so plug in your headphones and enjoy. We would love for you to like, share and comment, so please do on social media. And if you have questions, ideas for topics or deals you would like to explore, we're always looking for guests, so get in touch via the My Property World profile. Hello and welcome to another episode of My Property World. Today, I'm delighted to have Adam Lawrence back on the show. Great to have you here, Adam. Thanks for having me again, Will. So Adam is one of the co-founders of Partners in Property, uh, which is running an event in the West Midlands, uh, the back end of June. You, you can look it up on the Partners in Property community Facebook page. But Adam, you, you might give us a, a quick overview of your own uh, background as a practical economist and uh, and a very practical property entrepreneur. Thanks, Will. Um, so I've got a couple of uh, degrees, one uh, undergraduate and third to a master's and another master's, both of which involved a healthy dose of economics. So that's my um, academic interest in economics. I've continued to remain very interested in the macroeconomy um, since my university days, and I've tried to apply some of those uh, longer-term trends and factors that I've seen, which really is one of the things that got me into property in the first place. If we go back 10 years, you know, a low-rate environment, um, a supply constraint on the supply of new housing, a price adjustment that had happened because of the financial crisis, um, it seemed to me to offer a potentially perfect storm for property investment, which one way or another through referenda and through pandemics and things like that has continued to provide a pretty good 10, 12 year landscape for what I've done so far. What Where we're at at the moment is a really fast changing, almost a maelstrom of conditions, really, that make things somewhat challenging and means you need to make tactical adjustments but I don't think the original premise that uh, real estate has, has outperformed all the other major asset classes in the UK over the last 30 or 40 years. And that um, brings us to, uh, I suppose, the headline of what we're, we're going to be talking about today, which is investing in inflationary times. Uh, and most, most of us um, haven't experienced anything like this. Uh, in terms of inflation levels within our adult lives. Now, um, what what the uh, operating mode for a uh, an individual property investor um, and basically understanding what's going on and what to do about it um, over the next year or two, which, which certainly looks like uh, we've got much higher levels of inflation than uh, the, the recent past, certainly the last decade or so. Um, so maybe let's start um, with a textbook definition of 
um, of inflation and um, where does it fit into the wider economy? And then we'll start getting into how it interacts with the real estate market and indeed what the right moves are to make. Thanks, Will. So inflation is like a lot of these measures in that it's very broad. So uh, it's a number that gets quoted and that number, of course, has relatively significant impact over people's decisions um, and people's confidence, consumers' confidence, apart from anything else. Now, look, some people will ignore it. Some people will be unaware of it. Um, you could say that about anything political or economic uh, in general, um, but it does inform particularly business owners um, and economic agents who are going to make large purchasing or consumption decisions for example whether to buy a house this year or whether to wait a year uh, would be a, a really good example of one that might be influenced so at the highest level it's a basket of goods that's put together that's deemed to represent what the average household whoever they are spend their money on and that basket gets updated over time so as people start spending money in the metaverse for example or on mobile phone gaming, of course, 10 or 15 years ago, you wouldn't have expected mobile phone gaming to feature as a part of the uh, the basket of goods, whereas now you, you might do. Um, streaming services would be another one. And of course, whilst people are keen to always talk about things that have gone up, I've got things that have trended down in cost over time, either because they've been amalgamated into the mobile phone so digital cameras would be a pretty good example of that. Or just technology has got cheaper and cheaper in real terms because it might have been £400, maybe £800 for a television set in 1970 for a really good one. Um, whereas these days, you can probably get one for 200 quid that does a really good job. And that, of course, is 200 quid in 2022 money, not in 1970 money. So... Um, it measures the ups and downs. It's often derided because you could say, for example, in construction, what's relevant, the inflation rate or the inflation rate of the construction sector, which you'd probably split into labour and materials. And it would be easy to say that uh, the construction sector inflation is the relevant one. But of course, if you're developing property to sell, then it's still relevant to you what people want and what they can afford at the back end. So... Of course, as a developer, you've got to be cognizant of the construction inflation and you've got to try and keep a lid on those cost price rises. Um, but you've also got to keep on uh, an eye on the wider economy if you're looking at going into projects that are going to mature in two, three, four, five years, you know, Will? OK, so, so just as a, um, uh, I suppose focusing on the, the, the basics, because we're talking about investing in inflationary times, um, if someone um, had to understand at a basic level the difference between nominal and real and what that means in an investment context, uh, how would you go about describing that? Sure. So starting at the, the very big level, um, real means adjusted for inflation. So when we talk about the GDP, which is the measure that we use to define recessions, to define economic growth, and there's lots and lots of arguments around why GDP isn't the best measure. Um, at the moment, it probably hangs on as the best measure apart from all the, the worst measure apart from all the others, I should say. Sorry. Um, 
And that just means growth adjusted for inflation. So when you take that into account, you can see when inflation is roaring, why it's so hard for real GDP to grow. Because nominal means, and nominal, I suppose the best way to define nominal is how the print media applies their trade, right? Because all they want to talk about is house prices hit record high, right? Now, they're talking about nominal terms. So the most expensive for the average house in the UK beforehand has been 269,000. It's now 271,000. So house prices are at an all-time high. It's not a lie, um, not an outright lie, but it's the sensationalism and misrepresentation where we're going through times of huge inflation. It's not uncommon, it's important to understand. It's not uncommon at all in times of really high inflation for prices to go up, nominal prices and property, but in real terms, them to get cheaper. So you might, we could come up with an example of, let's say house prices went up 5% this year, but inflation was 10 and wage rises were seven. Now we could be there by the end of the year, that's a very, very plausible scenario right now of what 2022 might look like, right? Now, yes, we can still get those headlines at the end of the year, house prices at record high. Then we could get some unfair conclusions from that, as unaffordable as they've ever been, the most unaffordable. But if wages are up 7% on average, that's not the case. They're actually more affordable than they were at the start of the year. Um, and then the other important point, in real terms, inflation adjusted, then ultimately um, they've lost money in real terms. They've gone down. Now, why does everybody then not lose money in those circumstances? Well, because they're using mortgages and they're using fixed fixed cost debt. Now, now one of the things that um, I've read quite a bit uh, in, in your Sunday supplement, uh, which can be found at the Partners in Property community Facebook page, uh, is your discussions around uh, how this re recession that's likely to be hitting us at some stage uh, is going to be a bit different to other ones. Um, and in the high inflation uh, potential for stagflation, uh, it's quite different uh, to the experiences that we've had in the last two or three uh, recessionary times. So what, uh, what in your, your view is going on and is likely to go on over the next couple of years? Uh, and we are asking for a little bit of a crystal ball gaze as to what might happen. Now look, we've, got to, we've got to do that well as investors. You know, I, I think the, the wrong thing me to do would be to pretend that I'm going to get it exactly right because I'm definitely not. The, the right thing to do is to accept that we make forecasts as investors in order that we can make better decisions. And we build those forecasts based on uh, economic history and experience. And where people often make mistakes is they go back as far as the last recession or they go back as far as I remember the 1970s. It's very unlikely that anybody remembers the 1970s with significant clarity. It was five decades ago. So unless you've got something approaching 
an utterly spectacular memory. And of course, the other the other thing that's important is even if you even if it was the carbon copy of the 1970s, those people likely experienced the mid 70s double dip recession as a 25 year old, and they're going to experience the 2020 situation as a 75 year old. So they're their, their wants, their needs, their economic activity, their lifestyle have changed immeasurably in that time. Um, so the experience uh, is most of the world around them. Exactly. And so it's dangerous to say it will be like X or Y. What I can say with authority is that we've not gone into a situation like this and we're still not absolutely guaranteed a recession. We're going to need to see some fairly good soft landing policies on the fiscal side. So this is up to the government and, and specifically the Treasury, specifically the Treasury, try and ensure a soft landing if that's what they want to try and do. Now, it's probably a good thing that we've got a comparatively right-wing government in power because they don't like to mess with markets so much. Now, that's a bit of a giggle of a statement to an extent after the pandemic because they messed with stuff an awful, awful lot. But there's a pretty good excuse for if when it really hits the fan, and I describe that as wars or pandemics, ultimately, that really is when the government can prove its worth. Right Now, some people might be listening to this thinking, are you joking? Did you see what happened? Right. You know, and I understand why you would be thinking that you're thinking, 37 billion track and trace. Matt Hancock's buddy gets PPE contracts because he's his pub landlord, etc. I, I understand all of that. But we've got to look past the what we can honestly call corruption in the first world. We've got to look past the, the, the corruption argument and we've got to look to at the macro level. What did furlough do? Was it a good policy? And, um, and I, I think the fact that we're still here uh, is a you know, it, it's a pretty good indicator that they got through it okay. And look, Will, I, I have exposure to um, the third of the population who don't have who don't have property ownership every day, you know, by, by asset managing the portfolio that we own. And we don't hear any stories of, I'm still suffering from the pandemic, this happened in the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We hear none of that. The only pandemic casualties we've had have been mental health which have been a significant number um and then being brutally honest people who've used the pandemic as an excuse and we know that to be true because on their social media they're buying things they're posting things they're going on holiday they're getting married they're doing all this stuff they just used it as an excuse not to pay the rent um and i, I should be very very clear that is a, a, a problem confined to one to two percent of people. So I wouldn't want to misrepresent that in a Daily Mail kind of way. Um, that's a very, very small percentage of people because the vast majority of people are honest and hardworking and that's the nature of the beast. And and so um, just at a macro level, um, the interaction between money supply and the wider real estate market. Um, and, and I think you, you characterised this previously as the cart before the horse. Or was a horse before the cat? Well, this is it. This is why it's a chicken and egg, right? So we what we have in terms of the last decade is some experience of a vastly expanding money supply 
to quantitative easing, which came in in tranches when it was needed to boost a lacklustre economy. So what you really had in the financial crisis was a comparison. We still had a big recession, but it was still a soft landing because of all this that was pumped in and we didn't take our medicine. And you, you will have heard that. I mean, I know, Will, I've used the phrase dozens and dozens of times over the last five or six years to talk about what's been happening. We kicked the can down the road. And what that meant is suppressed growth. What that meant is no return on savings for people. What that meant is driving people into taking more risk to get returns. Um, and what it meant was we didn't, what we could have maybe got through in two to three years, it's taken us 12 to 15 years to get through, or arguably we're not through yet. So more money in the economy. What did that do for stock market prices? It's, it's largely expected that it inflated them a little bit more than they should have been inflated, right? It gave them a very easy environment. And look, if you're a big corporate, tiny levels of interest rates are a massive gift to you because you would be carrying roughly the same amount of debt. You would be carrying some debt because it's tax efficient and it improves the return on equity for your shareholders, right? Because ultimately that's why the big corporates exist, yeah? To deliver a return to the shareholders. So those returns on equity were bid up because the debt was cheaper. And then because they looked attractive and because you couldn't get any, any real return by buying bonds and keeping money in the bank, it drives more people to buy more equities. It drives the stock prices up. Right? That logic doesn't hold in the housing market. And in fact, if you go back to our sort of soft landing sort of argument from 2008, you know, what you saw was loosely about something like a 25% rise over the course of the whole decade. So a lot of people don't know this. So we're now talking about nominal prices. Remember, we're not talking about inflation adjusted. So the figure for Scotland, for example, 2010 to 2019, total average, it saw 8% rise in its house prices. Wales, I think, was 12 to 15%, right? When we then inject the fact that over the course of the whole decade, inflation was about 32%, I think, then in real terms, both Scotland and Wales house prices went down. They got cheaper. Um, they were more affordable. Now, part of the problem with using that metric was if you worked in the public sector, you had below inflation pay rises. Um, it was only towards the end of 2018, if memory serves me, and through 2019, that we actually started to see real terms wage growth back in the three and four percent bracket as the labor market really started to tighten before the pandemic right so everybody went years with probably battling to keep their head above water now that's not a fair reflection of what truly happened if you started a graduate job in 2010 and you worked through to 2019 why not because you got promoted so as you got promoted you went up through the ranks and you got paid more but i mean the the amount of your pay increase that would be due to inflation was very, very weak in your wage rise was weak, very weak. So you had to charge forward in order to go forward, which the happily will. We have a relatively socially mobile um, labour force and economy. People are able to do that. But we're talking at the very, very high level here, not 
something that would reflect an individual, unless in 2010 you were in a job and in 2019 you were doing that exact same job and you would notice that you're, and of course that is the case for some people, unfortunately, no promotions, no nothing. And ultimately your wage wouldn't have been a great increase of what it was in, in 2010. And it would buy you less in real terms. So in terms of um, where we are now, we're, we're almost certainly uh, in a high inflation environment and likely to be for um, the, I won't say the foreseeable future, but certainly the next year or two. That would be a fair estimation at this moment. Uh, and it's just a question of, are, are we talking flat economic growth or a bit of a recession or a, perhaps a bigger recession? What's the um, what's the outlook uh, as an investor? Well, the the mistake that I made at the beginning of this year or the end of last year was thinking that the fact that the Bank of England uh, knew that we can't really put the rates up too quickly because something will pop in the economy would be the major driving force. Whereas really, of course, the major driving force for them is to control inflation because that is their sole purpose. That's their job. And at the moment, it looks like they're doing a bad job. You know, inflation is nine in April. That's the official figure. Uh, you can argue about above and below on all of that, but it's a horrible number. It's a horrible number for every household, right? There's no two ways about that. Unless you were sitting on your, your net worth in inflation-protected bonds, which do exist, of course, but even then you're only breaking even in real terms, right? You're still not making any headway. You're keeping up. And, but, and just at a basic level, what, what's in it for me in, in terms of uh, the risks and, and how can I understand those best as an individual? So the, the, the first risk we really need to emphasise is the upside risk. So that is on... The inflation number itself, as you correctly said, Will, we can say this is going to be here for the next year or two. Historically, inflation at this level tends to take two to three years to subside back to normal levels. We could make an argument it would be a bit faster because some of this is driven by pandemic effects that cause flashes. Um, but some of those flashes are still happening. Um, supply chain locks in China, thanks to continuing zero COVID policies, would be an example. Um, just just in time, methods of manufacturing being uh, rode back on or extremely dangerous. So having to hold big inventories of stock, um, that's not efficient for, for capital purposes apart from anything else. So there's an upside risk to the inflation itself. And once I, I wrote about this over the past 12, 18 months. Once you go past about 4%, somewhere between 4 and 5%, in, in an economy that looks like today's, the horse is out of the gate and you've got a big problem controlling it, right? So on paper, it would have sounded like, well, it would have been great for some inflation because it deflates away the government debt that they've created during the pandemic. The problem is, of course, it also creates them a problem in terms of needing to fund people on fixed incomes, the benefit system, the pension system, etc. So inflation itself has a big upside risk that still hasn't been quantified yet. We still haven't hit the peak yet. We're expecting to hit the peak in Q4 of this year. And a lot of that is driven by the energy price cap. So energy prices themselves, what we've seen 
I dislike using the word unprecedented after the last two and a half years of activity, but that, that is where it is. Unprecedented rises in gas prices, you know, 12 times what they were in real terms 20 years ago, 12 times. So that's after adjusting for inflation. So, in, I mean, it used to be historically incredibly cheap for gas. It's nearly turning into a luxury good where it is at the moment. Um, and then, of course, one of the problems that the Bank of England and the Treasury have to consider is what happens to wages in an environment like this. Because what they want to do is try and keep the wage rises down because the government bill just goes up and up and up if the public sector wages come uh, anywhere near where inflation has been. But of course, the real message that they, they can't say for political reasons is, you know, if the wages don't go up as much as inflation, standards of living go down, right? They go down. And that's not a good thing politically. Uh, that's not a good thing for society because it, it stokes social unrest. And if you've got, you know, trade union leaders that are reasonably well remunerated, they've got the biggest reason to stir up their workforce for many years' time. You know, I think, I think the tube's going on strike during the Jubilee. Uh, I'm not sure if that's about pay or whether that's about conditions or whether that's about anything else. But, I, <coughs> excuse me, highly unionised workforces are going to have more reason than they've had for many years to strike, ultimately. Um, and inflation doesn't help any of us in, in that regard. So, and quite, quite separate from the, uh, the unionisation is that um, your, your ability to um, basically hand your notice in and walk across the street and get a job at a, uh, at a higher rate because there's, uh, there's not a, a queue down the road for any job at the moment. That's right. That's right. We've, we've passed the point now. There's more vacancies than there are people who could theoretically fill those vacancies or more accurately want to fill those vacancies at the moment, which is a difficult position for employers and the labour market in general. But you could you could listen to this and think, well, why don't they just put wages up at the rate of inflation? Right. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Well, number one, what happens when there's a little bit of deflation? Very few people want to hear about a wage cut. Right. Number two, if wages go up with the rate of inflation, then consumption also goes up with the rate of inflation because people are still spending the same amount of money. So the politically difficult point is they need and want inflation to, to slow down consumption. But of course, that inevitably leads to a squeeze in GDP growth and potentially a recession. So if they don't keep the lid on that, it just creates this virtuous tornado upwards of prices cycling up and up and up and inflation potentially gets more out of control and then you start to approach hyperinflation um now <clears throat> that's very dangerous that's a situation where you know on monday morning you might have uh, you might have to put the cash in a pram to buy a loaf of bread and by friday that same cash can't buy that loaf of bread in fact it can't buy a few crumbs because things are going up so quickly now extremely unlikely in a highly developed economy and one of the reasons why is because they know what to try and control in these situations. Um, but it's still a fear. And when inflation is four, that sort of chat sounds a bit alarmist. When inflation is nine, going to 10, 11, 12, wherever we're going, um, then it's less, you know, you have to be having these conversations. So the reality is everybody's in for a bit of a tough time um, and it affects 
almost everybody in the same sort of way. The energy prices are slightly different. They're slightly disproportionate, but not as disproportionate as, as you might think. So every household has got a squeeze on its wallet, ultimately. That, that's where we're at at the moment. And there's, there's, a big, there's a big number of risks we've just outlined there in all of that that are macro, societal, um, and as investors, we need to be aware of. Um, and then we would, we would go towards drilling down to, okay, so what do we do about those things? Well, <clears throat> at a really granular level, we can look at the way we're underwriting our tenants. So I'll give you an example. In 2020, it seemed very strategically sensible to me to buy a portfolio along with a couple of business partners that was split about 50-50 universal credit slash LHA tenants and private tenants, right? Why? Because the safest stream of income in 2020 was from the government at the local housing allowance rate, right? And of course there was furlough, but furlough was only temporary. It was only ever going to be temporary. Now, 2022, does that look quite as smart as it was? Not necessarily, because those on fixed incomes are going to suffer the most. When benefits are up 3.1% this year, inflation is 9, 10, 11, 12. It leaves people who already don't have much money to speak of and have to budget incredibly tightly just to survive. It leaves them in a much worse position than they were already in. So what would that look like for underwriting new tenants? Well, who do they work for, private sector or public sector? Might not be a question people have asked before. Um, how many mouths are there to feed? What's the likely energy bills from that property? What can you do about that sort of thing? Well, you can help with grant funding. You can pump money into insulating the properties yourself in order to make things more sustainable um, for tenants, and this is why one of the reasons why the EPC legislation will will have to be pushed forward. There's a good economic case. When we buy something at the moment, Will, we're looking to get it up to a C by retrofitting as a worst case scenario. We're also considering the EPC as an, a really important piece of information, which the market, as yet, in my opinion, is not considering. You can see stuff that's equivalent with an EPC of E and an EPC of C, and even, even above C, sell at very similar prices. And that's fundamentally incorrect for the investment market. So there's, there's a little opportunity in there at the moment. Um, so yeah, changing, changing of underwriting on prospective tenants is definitely one. Um, if you run HMO or service accommodation and you're therefore paying bills, you need to relook at Renewables, I think, because some of the payback on some of that is very good. Um, that would include PV panels and potentially now battery solutions, because the battery solutions numbers have changed thanks to the energy prices. Um, might include things like air source heat pumps if it's viable for the property. So often it's not viable, which is um, one of those things, but might include ASHBs, um, might include anything where there's, there's still... Uh, and there's likely to be grant scheme money coming out. And there might already be grant scheme money from the local authority, from places like that, um, that need to be looked into. There are obviously people that go around 
providing energy efficient solutions with the grant money and do that for a living, um, which you can you can seek out as well. So, so historically, um, the the biggest cost in a um, in a property, apart from the uh, initial purchase, uh, is the servicing uh, of the debt against it. Now, that that may change the way energy prices are going, um, but uh, on the basis that uh, m- uh, most of the people listening uh, would be at least considering a, a leverage purchase, or uh, and it's a, to what extent and what product options. Uh, how how do you look at this in inflationary times? What what's the uh, what's the uh, basic questions you need to be asking? What are the key numbers in making a good choice uh, about fixed long-term debt? And uh, what, why would someone look at that versus other product options? Yeah, so great question, Will. So ultimately at the moment, in the 12 years I've been doing this, this in a serious way, this is the most compelling case for five-year fixed rate debt and beyond that I've ever seen, without a shadow of a doubt, by a long, long way. Now, most people like to sleep at night and they, they probably prefer five-year fixes. There was a spate of using two-year fixes, especially in the London market in the early part of the last decade, so you could recycle money more quickly and go for your next purchase. And when you're seeing a melt-up in a market, it's quite a good idea to do that as a speculator. Um, it's not the time to be speculating on that sort of stuff, in my opinion, even though a lot of the market is melting up. So be dangerous. If, 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 it's dangerous to think you could use the same tactics today as you did in 20, 2011, 2012, 2013 in London. Um, so there's no doubt. I mean, look, you should be investing in property. If we're talking about investing, we're not talking about flipping and developing property. You should be investing in property with a time horizon of at least five years and probably 10, right? Because otherwise, the frictional costs are too high to consider investments that you might only hold for a couple of years. The, 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 the exceptions to that rule would be you're an incredibly good buyer of property, right? You either have great connection, great contacts, you have a BMV cash buying business, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that, would, that would be slightly different right um but other than that you should be looking at five plus if not ten plus year time horizons um because that's gonna smooth out the frictional costs of the purchases and you're going to benefit from the vagaries of the market although the market is generally very smooth anyway you're going to benefit from the vagaries of that market so that's um important to consider you've obviously got to look at your early repayment charges on some of these longer fixed duration loans there's no two ways about it. But at the moment, because the mortgage market operates, you know, a few months behind, uh, because what they have to do is they, they get the tranche of money allocated, whether it's their own funds because they're a bank or whether it's because they're a package lender. And then they've got sometimes three to six months to deploy that product. Now, sometimes it's a lot shorter because a product is much more popular than they their product team potentially realized, yeah? But quite often you've got that length of time. So at the moment, I can move, I am doing this, I'm moving some properties from a a product that's 2.73% above base, so currently paying 3.73, to a product 
that is 2.98% fixed for five years. Now, that's as near to an arbitrage as I've seen in the in the fixed and floating property uh, mortgage mortgage rate markets available to a retail a retail punter with two or more properties to move. So that sort of thing you've got to look out for. So we, we're trying to talk about people who might want to buy today. And you know, you can lock in a mortgage offer and that offer is probably going to be good for three months. And you might be able to extend it, might be able to, depends what happens in the market, for up to six months, right? So you've got you've got time. You've got time. Then we've got people who've got relatively new debt that's got higher early repayment charges. It might be, if they're two-year fixes, it might still be worth looking at now. If they're floating, it's definitely worth looking at now. Then you might have people who've got five-year fixes that are in year three or year four and have got low early repayment charges that, again, might be worth looking at. What's the price today? What's the probable price in six months' time? Guns to my head, 375 to 4% fixes, right? Will it go up beyond that, potentially? What's the difference between that and 2017, probably, when those rates were last around? That was last the sort of market rate. Well, the difference is the yield, because the capital growth has run away on a lot of these products, and therefore you've got a yield squeeze between what you can rent it for sustainably, given what we've just said about households and all the rest of it, and what the mortgage rate is. And like you say, Will, that's that big slice of your margin every month, the biggest slice that you need to consider. And what you don't want is that to be volatile on the upside. So uh, on, the, on the assumptions that uh, over the next three years that on average your rents will be rising... Uh, and that you're, you've got a average inflation rate of somewhere in the region of 5%, maybe maybe higher. If you can fix in for those three years, and we'll just use three years as a, uh, as a somewhere in between two and five, yeah, which are the, the typical fixed rate options for, for the vast majority of fixed products. What's the, what's the meaning as an investor, um, of that that choice, you you you're able to get a loan at three percent. Inflation is at uh, at an average of five over that time, and and we'll, we'll say that rents go up an average of of five percent as well. What what's happened to your money? What's happened to your investment? Uh, and, and should you fix now? Uh, just to give you a little gimme there. Yeah. So, well, in order to, to really answer that question, we've also got to speculate over what happens to house prices. But if we said they also went up 5% in that period in line with inflation, right, which is perfectly possible and much, much calmer than what we've seen over the last 18 months, yeah, then ultimately the debt is going to stay fixed in nominal terms. So it's going to deflate by that 5% that you've just said. Well, the rents are going to improve. So that side of the margin is going to improve. As a percentage, the mortgage is going to be a lower percentage of the pie every month as rents do increase. And in nominal terms, you're going to make more money. But in real terms, you're going to make more money as well because of that fixed cost debt. And that's really the key factor. Making money in real terms during times of high inflation, stagflation, things like that, 
there's a you know famous old joke from the 70s was the game in investment in the 70s was who can lose the least money in real terms, right? Because nobody was making money in real terms after inflation because inflation was 24.2% one year, right? So you can understand why why nobody was making money in real terms, even though people point back to the 70s quite often and say, oh, the housing market went mad, this happened, you know, the stock market did this, that and the other. We had the oil crash, we had stock market was all over the place, to be honest, but there was leading into a bull run of the of the earlier 80s after they came out of the 80s recession. Um, so there's, there's a, a, a really unique opportunity in investment in general in real estate at the moment to get stuck into it and fix some of that debt and, and part. And this goes back to something we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, Will. You've got to make these decisions within a framework of how much debt, you know, we, we talk about good debt and bad debt quite a lot, right? And at the moment, you could argue bad debt is floating debt and good debt is fixed debt, rather than what the traditional argument is, which is good debt is against assets and bad debt enables you to fund liabilities effectively. Um, there's a bit of nuance to that argument at the moment, I would I would say. Um, so that that's a, a pretty obvious case for fixing, a pretty obvious case for um, deploying. Now, of course, some people are having the problem of they, they just, we had a, a talk at uh, Partners in Property Manchester yesterday where uh, a guy who runs a sourcing company purchased quite a lot of stuff for uh, offshore investors who are really allocating capital. They're not looking for deep BMV. They're not looking for buy, refurb, refinance opportunities. They want their money in the UK, in residential property, geared in a sensible way, right? Or sometimes they're just buying cash. And he was saying he was, in order to protect his investors, he's topping out his offers at 10% above the asking price at the moment. And he said, of every five houses where he is, which is central Manchester, every five houses, they're getting one or two based on those sorts of offers. So that's still today, you know, middle of May, coming to the end of May 2022, that's how hot that market still is right now. Mm -hmm. Incredible. Okay, so um, just rounding off, um, could you, you give us a, a couple of tips in terms of the mindset uh, shift that is going to be appropriate uh, for people in different circumstances, investment-wise, going into these, I, I suppose, high inflation uh, slash stagflationary times, which are, are, are upon us, essentially? Absolutely. So I think we've got to start with managing managing the risk to the, the, the credit that you use, as we've just talked about. So fixing debt, long duration debt. If you have a doubt whether you're going to hold a property for a long time, it might be a really good time to consider selling it. Because if you flip that argument, I've just given you back on its head, people are buying stuff well above asking price. Um, and that market is here today. And that market might be gone by October. You know, it normally takes a little while for things to calm down. Things normally calm down a bit over the summer anyway, right? They normally melt up to about June, maybe middle of July or early July, then they start to calm down again anyway. So, so that needs to be borne in mind, definitely. Um, control the upside risk. So if you're 
if you're exposed to energy prices, for example, HMO, et cetera, et cetera, do your maths, work out what can you afford to put in, what's the payback on a set of solar PV panels, right? Think about what it's going to do for your EPC as well. It's going to make your investment future-proof. Um, what can you then do as well? You can work, you can have some very smart stuff inside the house that makes the most of those solar panels, right? Um, and, and there are obviously heating controls and solutions around windows being open and all that sort of clever stuff that it might be worth looking into again as well. Um, and of course, people shouldn't forget buildings that have got electric. The high heat retention heaters that are relatively new uh, to the game are night and day different to your old school storage heaters, standard electric heaters, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's also something for consideration, relatively affordable and can be free if you've got the right sort of tenanture and receipt of the right sort of benefits. So you've got to look into that stuff, educate on that, yourself on that stuff, find the people who are doing it. Um, so that's sort of controlling your energy exposure and then back to how you underwrite your tenants, what are their jobs, what are their lifestyles, what are their dependents, what are they likely to be able to, where are they going to get squeezed in the next 12 months? That's what you're asking yourself ultimately. And ultimately as well, more and more these days, who are their guarantors? Um, because we've got a little bit more separation in society where we, we're seeing a lot more in terms of guarantors. People are bringing them in up front because they know that they're wanted. The reality is the guarantor is helping the, um, the tenant with 40 quid here and there to fill up the car, a bit for the electric bill, this, that and the other. There's a real reality behind that. So you're going to, you're going to want guarantors and you're going to under, want to underwrite them a lot more closely as well. Um, and this is all just revenue protection side of the argument. Ultimately, um, we've covered the fixing debt, I think, pretty comprehensively, Will, but it's worth repeating one more time. People need to have a really, really close look at their ratio between how much cash have they got, how much fixed debt have they got, and how much floating debt have they got. And they need to be comfortable with those ratios. And remember, there's an argument around building a bit of a cash pot at the moment, because if there is a wobble and credit gets withdrawn, then ultimately cash is king in those situations. It's an old one, but it's a gold one. It's expensive to hold cash at the moment, but if you've got many, many, many times more amount of fixed debt than you have cash, and that, that's my own personal situation, you might want to think about the, the seesaw there between the two ultimately um i always say as well worth remembering don't don't fix all of your debt on one day to expire in five years time it's not a sensible maneuver try and break up your uh your, your debt anniversaries your fixed rate drop-offs so you're not because because you know it doesn't look great today the economic outlook we don't know what it might look like on the 20, 22nd of may 2027 right it might not look great at all uh, so you don't want to be exposed to that day to drop off onto hugely expensive standard variable rates or, or whatever. Um, it's another good point about dropping off. What, what are you seeing on your products when you drop off? Are you dropping off onto standard variable or are you dropping off onto base plus something, et cetera, et cetera? It might be worth looking at because standard variable might be kinder to you. doesn't look like it today, but it might be kinder to you than base plus three or something like that 
in three to five years' time. Who knows? There is upside risk at the moment. That's the, the central point, really, that, that I'm making, Will. Um, and I think that's probably covered everything we've talked about today and the, the nuggets at the end, I think, hopefully. Well, that, that's fantastic. So um, you can connect with Adam on LinkedIn, Adam G. Lawrence. Um, and the basic message is to stay calm, look at your numbers, um, and, and think clearly. So uh, I'm Will Mallard. This is My Property World. Adam Lawrence, uh, thanks once again. Thanks for having me again, Will. Welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together. Whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading or getting involved in a deal in another way. We do this by informing, entertaining and enjoying ourselves talking property, which gives you a chance to get to know us, what we're up to and to check us out until you're ready to make money together. In the meantime, My Property World is free and fun, so plug in your headphones and enjoy. We would love for you to like, share and comment, so please do on social media. And if you have questions, ideas for topics or deals you would like to explore, we're always looking for guests, so get in touch via the My Property World profile.